So we're going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the Action of the Church because that's exactly what Acts is about, is what the first century church was doing. So if you brought your Bibles, open to Acts 25. We're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 25 this morning. And I'm calling this sermon, Don't Mess with God. Now, I almost called this sermon, We've Got Worms. No, man, that, that killed him in the first service, but the second service, nobody. But it, you'll see why I call it that in a minute. But anyway, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to be reading about a man. We're going to read about a very, very powerful man, a very wealthy man, but in the ends of ends, he's just a man. And we're going to find out that he's messing with God. Okay? He's fighting against God. Not all that smart. You know, he may be powerful, he may be wealthy, but he's not really smart. He's really blinded by his own pride. Because you can't fight with God. Well, I guess you can, but you can't do it and win. You're not going to come out on the other side victorious. Because if you choose that path, let me tell you how it's going to end. Bad. Real bad. It's going to end badly for you if that's the, the, the path you choose. But, you know, go through all of history... All the countless numbers in, in, in the Bible, and, and you won't find a single individual that did that and won. You know, even though God is undefeated in all of the history of time, that doesn't stop people from trying to mess with Him. You know, think of it. God is a number that I can't even conceive of and zero. That is God's record. He is the all-time in all of history, and before there was even time in history, there was God, and he is undefeated. And so to this date, he still has a zero in the lost column, and yet that doesn't stop people from messing with him. So let's go ahead and let's start in Acts chapter 1, look at verse 1. It says, About that time, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Dr. Luke, when he pens this letter, he tells us that it's about this time. Well, what time is he talking about? He's talking about the famine that was spoken about earlier in, in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, there's this guy, Agabus, and he tells us that there's famine that's going to come across the entire land. It's going to hit during the time of Claudius Caesar. And think about, it, think about it. It's at this time that Herod says, you know what, right now would be a good time to persecute the church. Now that they're starving to death, now that they're really hungry, now let's go ahead and, and now would be a good time to persecute the church. And this is King Herod. Well, if you don't know King Herod, let me go ahead and introduce you to the Herods. Um, there's a, a big family of the Herods, the first of which was Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled Israel from about 41, C, 41 B.C. up until about the point where Jesus comes on the scene in the flesh. He was the king that that made the edict go out that all the male babies under a certain age, they had to be slaughtered. And they had to do that to, to protect his, his kingship. And then he was a guy, he was married ten times, and he had all these different wives, and, and he had all, a bunch of different children. And these are the Herods that kind of dominate the scene through the New Testament. Well, there's King Herod Agrippa I, that's the king that we read about here in Acts chapter 12, then there's King Agrippa II, there's Philip the Tetrarch, and there's several other characters. This, this Herodian family that's kind of spattered throughout our New Testament. And I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing all the, the terrible, wicked things that the Herods did. Let me just kind of sum it up like this. They're, out of, they're straight out of an episode of Jerry Springer. 
Okay, if you remember that show, I mean, all the craziness and what went on, that's this family, only they have tons of money and tons of power, which really fuels the wicked, wicked things this family would do. And, and, and so there, we bring up to Acts chapter 12, and, and King Herod, he's essentially, he's picking a fight with God. Go ahead and guess in your mind how this is going to end for him in the end by the time we get to this chapter. If you don't already know what's going to happen. It's going to, if you're guessing bad, you guessed right. Side note on Acts chapter 12. Up until this point, it's been largely what the church has been, it's what the church has been doing. But we see Peter, the apostle Peter at the forefront leading everything the church has been doing. But at the end of Acts chapter 12, we're really going to see Peter fade away into the back. We're going to see him come one more time in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, but really, it's not going to be about what Peter's doing. From this point moving forward, once we get to 13, there's a, there's a change, there's a turn, and it's really Saul of Tarsus, who, what he's doing, the work that God's doing through him, and so largely moving forward, it's going to be Saul leading the church. See, think about it. The groundwork has already been done for the gospel to explode. There's been the salvation of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. We read about that a couple weeks ago. And now there's been the founding of the Gentile church in Antioch, the very first Gentile church. And this is the church that starts sending out missionaries all over the, the known world at this time, spreading the gospel message. And what did God use to make, to make his church go out? He used persecution. That was the, 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 the catalyst that God used to make the believers go out and to share the gospel. The persecuted church, per, uh, it, it hits and they go out. And it, it's Herod that is persecuting them at this time. He thinks that now would be a good time to get rid of all these, these terrible Christians. And as a result, evangelism spreads all throughout the world. And look what happens next. Verse 2. It says, he, is talking of Herod, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. James, this is the son of Zebedee. He is the, the brother of, of the apostle James. And Herod kills him with a sword. Well, according to the Talmud, the Talmud is, a, is basically a Jewish set of commentaries that's looking at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, number, uh, not Gen, I'm here, I just had a brain moment here. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those, that's only four. But anyways, it's a, it's a discussion of those five books. And it says that anybody that, that leads somebody to a false god, the correct way to kill them is with a sword. And here, that's what Herod's doing. I don't think that, that Herod so much read the Talmud, because this isn't really religious reasons. This is more political reasons. But then again, Herod's really trying to win favor with the Jews. And so that's why he has, he has James killed. Think about this. Jay, uh, excuse me, Herod is a king in Israel. Now Israel is being occupied by the Romans at this time. So really he's nothing more than a, than a puppet king. So how do you maintain your control of this, your empire? What you do is you persecute the minorities. And, and the majority is the Jews and the minorities are the Christians. So he starts persecuting the Christians to win, um, win favor with the majority. And so that's why he puts James to death. This James is the same James that was one of the inner three. You know, there's Peter, there's James and John. We read about them through, through our, 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 the Gospels. Well, let's know you can be a friend of Jesus and still experience terrible persecution. He even dies here. 
This was the James where there's one point in the gospel where James and John, they bring their mama to, to, to Jesus to essentially ask for a promotion. So, hey, hey if, you, if you're looking for a job interview and you go to your boss for a promotion, don't bring your mom. Okay? You're probably not going to get that promotion if you bring your mom to your job interview, but whatever, they still do it. And the mom comes to Jesus, and the mom says, Hey, let one of my boys sit on, our, on your right, and one of my boys sit on your left in the kingdom of God. And Jesus essentially asks, he says, Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, Oh, yeah, we can do that, Jesus. No, they can't. They don't have a clue what they're even asking for. And then Jesus says this, he says, You will drink of the cup. This is what Jesus was talking about. When James would die by the sword, we're reading it here in Acts chapter 12. Let's keep reading. Look in verse 3. It says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So this is Passover time. This is one of the big festivals of the year. This is the perfect time that if, if Herod takes the, the biggest, most famous follower of this Jesus, he can bring him out and, and have him killed and win favor with the masses. So picture it. Everybody's in town. And big Herod throws little old Peter in prison. And Peter would have been chained to, to, four, to, well, chained to two guards. He has a guard on his right and a guard on his left. He's chained in between them. And then there would be two guards at the door 24 hours a day. There would be revolving set of of guards. Essentially, Peter's in maximum security prison. And he's waiting for Herod, is waiting for Passover to be over so he can bring out and offer up Peter as as a gift to the Jews, if you will. Remember Pilate, he got to offer up Jesus and he won favor with, with some of the Jews who's temporarily and. So now Herod's like, I can do the same thing, only this time it's going to be Peter. And so he throws Peter in prison. This is the third time Peter's been in prison. And I want us to know all something, recognize something here. That Herod is just one of many in this long line of self-deceived, hungry-powered fools that really thinks that he can mess with God. Because you can't. None of us. We can't mess with God and win Everybody who's ever tried this loses. And again, go through example after example in the Bible. People who tried to fight with God and they lost every single time. It's like that old Bobby Fuller four song, I fought with God and or the law and law won. Well, the song should be, I fought with God and who won? God, yes. There we go. We have one over here. Thank you, Vicki. <laughs> Let me try to give us three reasons today why we can't fight with God. We should never try to mess with God. If we do this, we're going to lose. And here's reason number one. God's power is uncontestable. And that one seems like a no-brainer to me. You're like, oh, thanks, Pastor John. Really lightning, great theology. But it's true because we can pit all of our strength and all of our effort. And we can try to do whatever we can. And we're not even going to touch God's nature. We're not even going to come close to His person. You're not even going to make Him deviate the slightest little bit from His plan. Because God's power cannot be contested. Here you have one of the most powerful men in the entire world. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take those Christians and I'm going to throw them in jail and I'm going to stop Christianity. And he puts little old Peter in a maximum security prison. Look what happens next, verse 5. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter's put in prison, and the church starts to pray. If, we, if this sounds familiar to you, this is Acts chapter 5 all over again. Peter's put in prison, the church comes together, and they start praying. And I think I know what they're praying for. They're like, dear God, can you get Peter out of prison? Like, like you did in Acts chapter 5, that was awesome. Can, can we have a repeat performance of what happened back then? In the name of Jesus, amen. Something like that. Look what happens. Verse number 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, side note, notice how God's timing is always right on time. God's never too early. God's never too late. It's always right in the nick of time. This is on that very night. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off him. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought it was a vision. Remember back just earlier in the book of Acts, there was a, there was a sheet that descended in the four-footed animals and birds and reptiles, and he was having a vision. Well, I, Peter thought, oh, here's another vision. I better pay attention. No, this is really happening, Peter. Verse 10, when they had passed by the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And all the Jewish people were expecting. So, so, so rewind. Herod puts Peter in prison. And it's essentially in the special housing unit. Peter's locked up in the shoe. And it's while Peter is sleeping between two guards. He's laying on a stone floor. Now think about this. I can hardly buy a night's sleep. I got a big comfy bed and I got a warm comforter pulled over the top to keep me warm. I got the fan going to keep me cold. Two pillows under my head. Peter has none of this and yet he's sleeping like a baby. And the angel comes, uh, the angel comes in and he has to basically just kick him in the side. Hey, wake up, Peter. Get up. We, we got to go. He says, put on your cloak and put on your sandals. And I think Peter probably wiping the sleep from his eyes. All right. How did he not wake up the guard as he's moving the chain? But still, he didn't wake up. He thought he was dreaming. Peter's having such a good night's sleep, he thought the whole thing was a dream. And in long story short, he gets an angel escort right out the front door. Does anybody remember that, that old show, Get Smart, with Don Adams? You know, and he's walking into work. Yeah, that's it. Did you see the doors opening? And they're just walking out as, as he's walking into work. One door. The next door is going in. But this is what they're going out of prison. That's what it's looking like as he's going out of prison. I wonder if he got theme music. Do you think Peter got theme music? No, I don't, I don't know. That'd be cool if it told us. But no, no theme music. But this is what I picture in my head. You're like, Pastor John, you have a lot of thoughts going into your head. I have a lot of time as I'm reading the, the, the Bible. But anyways, and the text says, and he went out. They just walked out the front door. 
I mean, think about this. When, when God let the people out of Israel, there's a, the splitting of the, the Red Sea, and, and they just walk on out. And when God you know, made the walls of Jericho fall down, the walls literally fall down. And, and, that, and then there's also like when Sodom's leading, or excuse me, Lot is leaving Sodom, fire and brimstone, like lots of per- pomp and circumstance. This one time, just walk out the front door. I mean, it's a good plan if you can pull it off. And it says they went out in the street, and immediately the angel left him. The angel did his job, and peace out, he's gone. I guess if you're an angel and you do your job right, you get to go home. I don't know. But it's at that moment. It's at that moment that Peter goes, oh, this wasn't a dream. This is really happening. It wasn't when the handcuffs fell off. It, it wasn't when the guards didn't wake up. It's, it, it wasn't when the iron gates are opening like the doors as you're walking into Blair's. No. It's when the angel left him. I mean, come on, Peter. You're so hard-headed. You know, we give Peter a pretty hard time. But this time he gets something very, very right. Because picture this. Put yourself in, in Peter's sandals. You're locked up in a prison. Your best friend just got killed with a sword. You know you're next. And then some angel breaks you out. Where are you going to go? Where am I going to go? I'll tell you where we're going to go. We're going to get out of town, and we're going to go to some far-off country. We're going to hide in the hills, maybe go all the way to East Asia. We're going anywhere but staying local. But that's not what Peter does, okay? Peter has to think to himself. He says, you know what? My friends are worried about me. He's, he's wor- they know he, he knows they're worried about him, so he goes to the prayer meeting where, to let everybody know he's okay. He, it's like, he's like, wow, that was so cool. God rescued me again from, from a, a prison. And, you know, my friends are worried because there's a famine in the land. They're being persecuted. James just got killed with the sword. I need to go let them know God's still in control. As bad as it may seem for us, they need to know that God is still in control, that, that no matter what king is on an earthly throne, that God's still on the throne. I think that's what Peter was thinking. And you know what? I think that's what we need to be reminded. That God is still on his throne in heaven no matter who's calling the shots here on earth. Look what happens next. Read verse 12. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Uh, excuse me, uh, Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many of the, the gathered together and were praying and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported it that Peter was standing at the gate. And then they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they, sa- they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened it, they saw him and they were amazed but motioned him with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. So this is what, what, what's happening. The, 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 they're having a prayer meeting and they're, they're meeting in this, this home. Now, churches back then, they didn't have big buildings like we do today. They're primarily meeting at homes. In the early in the book of Acts, they're meeting in the temple. Because of persecution, they're not there. They can't meet there because they'll be persecuted. They'll, they'll die. So they're having church in this gal Mary's house. Now, there's lots of Marys in the Bible, but this Mary is the, the mother of John Mark. And she's obviously very wealthy because she has this, this servant named Rhoda. But don't forget, at this moment, Peter's a marked man. 
And he goes to Mary's house because he knows that's where the prayer meeting is going to be. And, and houses at this time, they're essentially big rectangles, if you will. But Mary's wealthy, so she has this outer court. And this is where Peter's knocking. He's trying to keep quiet and still wanting his friends to know he's alive. And he's knocking and knocking. And eventually Rhoda comes to the door. She says, who is it? And he says, it's Peter. She says, Peter who? He says, the apostle Peter, something like that. I don't know. But anyways, in her joy, Rhoda leaves. She just leaves him standing there, and she goes back to tell the others that Peter's here. Meanwhile, Peter's like, where'd she go? I'm still standing here. Why am I talking to myself? That's probably what's going through Peter's mind. But this is the funny part to me, okay? Because the Christians are in this prayer meeting asking God to get Peter out of jail. God answers the, the prayer so quickly that They don't even realize that God has said yes. And they start having this debate. Rhoda goes there, shows up the prayer meeting, essentially says, Hey, you guys can stop praying. The prayer meeting is over because the guy you're praying for, he's at the door. And they're like, Be quiet, Rhoda. We're we're having our prayer meeting. Dear Lord, get Peter out of jail. And he's like, No, no, no. Peter's at the door. And they're like, Don't bother us, Rhoda. We're trying to pray. But isn't that like Christians today? I mean, sometimes God answers our prayers before we can even say amen. And we're like, God's like, yes. And we're like, hold on, God. I'm not done with my part yet. Here, God. And we keep praying. That's us. We're, we're, we're the same as these people because there's times when it's time to pray. And there's a time when it's time to get busy doing what we're called to do. Because when God answers our prayer, it's time to stop praying and start doing Sometimes Christians think that their job is just to simply pray. To pray and pray and don't even, don't stop praying. Not necessarily so. Our job is to pray and then our job is to go. So don't just merely get stuck in that, well, my job is to pray. And we need to get busy living the Christian life the way that God has called us to do. Well, the prayer group wouldn't believe her. It says, but she kept insisting it was so. She says, it's Peter. No, it's not. It's Peter. No, it's not. And then somebody must have said, well, did you see Peter? She said, no, I only heard his voice. I wouldn't open the door. And then somebody said, well, it's his angel. Some, some people think, well, he said it's his ghost. No, the word there that was said in the Greek is angelos. It's where we get our word angel for. They didn't think this was a ghost. They thought it was Peter's angel. So I need to stop here for a minute. This is really, really bad theology from this prayer group because this is actually still a, a very popular idea today that when somebody dies, they, they go to heaven, they get a set of wings and get a little angel, a little halo. Not so, okay? People are people and angels and angels and the two don't go back and forth in between somehow, okay? When God created everything there was in the Genesis account on He doesn't exactly tell us when angels were made. I think it was someday between, this is my opinion, day three and day four. But the the pinnacle of God's creation came on day six when he made man. And in in Genesis 1.26, it says, The Holy Trinity says, Let us make man in our own image. So men and women, the, the last of God's creation, that's the only thing that was made in God's image. So think about this. God, God made us in a way that he didn't make the angels, as his image bearer. And I think that's one reason why Satan hates us so much. So you 
And you and you and me and all of us, we have something that the devil is so jealous of. I think that's why he really hates us so much and works so hard to, to stamp out humanity. But eventually they come to the door and, and they, they know something's going on. They say when they opened the door, they saw him, they were amazed, which really kind of shows you how much faith this group has. But can you imagine? They, they finally come to the door and they open the door and they go, Peter! He goes, shh, quiet. You know, he's still a wanted man. In verse 17, it says, but he motioned to them with his hand to be silent, and they described to him how the Lord brought him out of prison. Peter's whispering, and he's playing charades as the stuff fall out and got dressed, and the doors are open, and this went out. Ultimately, though, I say all this because Peter wanted his friends to know who's in control. God's in control. Peter said, hey, let me go tell you how good God is and how, how big of God is and, and how he got me out of this little old messy pr- prison. And then he said, go tell James. This isn't the James that was killed with a sword. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the, the leader at the, the first church in Jerusalem. Peter wanted to make sure there was this big entourage of people that went to James and said, let him know that he's still alive. And they would say, hey, we saw Peter. We saw him with our own eyes. He's alive. And then it says, and Peter departed and went to another place. The Bible doesn't tell us where Peter went. And I think the reason why, I don't, we don't know where he went, but I think the reason why we don't know is clear because this letter would have been available soon after this, this time. And I think Luke didn't include it because if Herod got the copy of this letter or if maybe the, the powers that be, they would have been able to chase Peter down and possibly killed him. And though we don't know where Peter went, I'm pretty sure we knew what Peter did. He went and told people about Jesus. He kept stirring up trouble and, and telling people about Jesus and sharing this gospel message. And he too drank the cup that Jesus spoke of of James. Because there's sources outside the Bible that tells us that he was crucified for his faith. Only, only Peter wasn't crucified like, like Jesus was, but Peter is, is, is recorded in extra-biblical sources that Peter said, hey, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. He said, instead, won't you crucify me upside down? And so Peter gave up his life for the gospel. Look what happens next, verse 18. It says, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Then after Herod searched for him, they did not find him. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. And they went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. I mean, imagine the scene. If, if, if you're one of the soldiers, you, you wake up and your prisoner's gone. That's a really bad deal if you're a Roman soldier. Uh, because your one job is to watch this prisoner. And if you don't already know this, if you're a soldier that loses your prisoner, you end up paying with your life. If you know the story of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, if you don't, we're going to read this in a couple weeks, but he was going to kill himself because his prisoner got away. But on this day, somebody did pay with their life. Herod was really mad, and and little old Peter got away. Because remember, it's all part of his plan. He's going to gain popularity with the masses, and now his his plan's ruined. Yeah, not real good for these guys. Herod has a search party sent out, and there's no Peter, so... Herod ordered these guys to be put to death. But again, as powerful as Herod was, he's absolutely no match for God. And the reason why is because God's power is uncontestable. 
So at this time, Herod tucks his tail between his legs and he crawls off in a huff to Caesarea. He, he goes off to have a pity party, if you would, in one of his many palaces. Look what happens next in verse 20. It says, Now when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon a throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he is eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's like, whoa! Here's the second reason we can't mess with God. The second reason is God's power is unavoidable. Let me kind of explain what's going on there because there's a lot going on in between the, the verses here. Tyre and Sidon are two free cities in the north. And, and Caesarea is, is down in the, on the coast in the Mediterranean. And the, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's just west of Jerusalem. And Tyre and Sidon again up in the north. And they don't belong to Herod, if you will. And Tyre and Sidon, they're, they're great seaports, and, and Herod would have wanted to use those to import and export his, his goods. But they're kind of dependent on Galilee much more than the reverse, and at this time, Herod's really mad. He didn't like probably the tariffs that Tyre and Sidon are putting on his goods that he's trying to sell throughout the known world. And so... This, this famine is coming to the land. They're probably hurting real badly. They need food and their people are dying. And so what does Herod do? He essentially has a trade embargo put on him. And he's really mad and they can't get the food they needed. And so they're going to be in big trouble. So these cities need to make a treaty with, with Herod. And so they, they came to Herod. They, they said they want to make peace. But here's the deal. You can't just come to a king. You have to be invited to come to the king. And so they thought, okay, we need to find somebody to be a go-between. And they choose Blastus. This says the king's chamberlain. It's essentially a treasurer. They find this guy. He's got an inn. And so they said, hey, Blastus, you go be the intermarry. And so he goes and he's trying to get friendship or make peace with Herod. And reason why is because they're in big trouble. They're going to starve to death if they don't. It says in verse 20, it says, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And so they said, hey, this is what we got to do. we got to make a big deal out of this. And we've got to go down and we've got to pay homage. We've got to do whatever it takes to win favor with King Herod. Because if we don't, we're going to starve to death. And so that's what they do. They, they go down and, and try, to, try to win the king's favor. And Do you think old prideful Herod ate something like this up? You better believe a narcissistic fool like Herod was, was loving this, heard these two powerful cities coming to bow at his feet and scraping for food. So what he did, he made a big occasion of it. He said, I want the whole world to know just how amazing I am, how great I am to have these two cities bowing at my feet. Now remember, Herod's coming off a big loss. He just came off a big loss where little old Peter just walked out of his prison, so he needs to do something to, to kind of puff himself back up. Well, at the same time, there's a Jewish historian that records a lot of what's going on. His name is Josephus. And what's really cool about Josephus, well, he's not a Christian. And he records what he records. We can compare it to the Bible, and they're saying the same exact thing. 
People say, well, hey, these Christians made up the, what happened in the Bible. Well, here's somebody who's not a Christian that's confirming it. Well, he gives us a little more detail that, that Luke lives out, leaves out. Here, when Herod wanted to throw a party, he wants to throw a party to let the whole world know how great he is, but it's kind of weird to throw a party for yourself. I mean, it's one thing to be a narcissist, but then to throw a party for yourself and to confirm that you're a narcissist, it's kind of weird. But So what he chooses to do, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll throw a party for Claudius Caesar. I'm going to throw a party for Claudius Caesar, and then I'll, you know, well, that'll be a whole day party, and then I'll tack two days on for myself. Uh, Josephus tells us at the same time that Claudius Caesar had just had some big win in Britain, and now he's coming back to this area, so it's going to be like, oh, hell, Caesar, for the great work that you've done. And so Herod gets all the big muckety-mucks to come to, to Caesarea, so he can show off how, how much he loves Caesar, but also how great he is. And so what happens is they meet in this amphitheater that was built by his grandfather. Here's the thing. I've been to this amphitheater. It is huge. Picture, you know, probably a little smaller than half a mile high stadium. Car- hand carved out of stone. It's row after row after row. It's right on the sea. It's looking west. And what happens is Herod puts his throne right in front of the amphitheater. The sea would have been behind his back. And, and all these people were ch- chanting and, and cheering for him. And it says that he put on his royal apparel. Josephus says it was a silver robe. It was a robe made of Caesar. My, my kids use this word. They say bougie. Did I say that right? No, okay, Ethan says I didn't say it right. No, I think I said it right. <laughs> He's looking all bougie and looking all splendid with the sun coming off his back and, and people screaming and yelling for him. I just wonder if he looked a little bit like Satan. You know, look, if you look in Ezekiel 28, it tells us just how amazing Satan was when he was made, but that's kind of what he was looking like. And there's all these people in the crowds, thousands of people chanting for him. If you want to see, read Isaiah 14, tells us what cause Satan to fall. It'd be a good little fun study to compare Herod and Satan because there's a lot of similarities there. But on the first day, it's a party for Caesar, and the second and third are for Herod. And all the people are worshiping Herod. He's, he's eating it up, and the people are screaming. Apparently, he prepared a little speech, and then somebody says, it's the voice of a God and not of man. Do you think Herod was eating this up? He was loving this, all the people, he's getting exactly what he wants. But here's what we need to know. God shares his glory with no one. With no one. Did you catch what happened in verse 23? It says, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Just a side question. Is this the same angel that got him out of prison? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I just I, I, something I want to know. But whoever this angel was, he struck him. And Herod was eaten by worms. Any King James readers? Any King James people? Nobody. Okay, well, the King James says smote. It says, uh, I'm reading the ESV, it says struck. So I read that and it almost sounds like wham, like the angel hit him hard. That's not what it means. The word here in, in the Greek is patseo. It means to gently touch. To gently touch. So, so picture it football stadium with the people screaming and yelling and the voice of a god not a man silver robes sun glistening off all sudden angel comes up and goes Beep. and worms explode out of his body he's like oh what a horror show in case you're wondering that word for worms is it's maggots it's like Gah. this is this is like the worst thing ever 
I don't know if they handed out vomit bags as they went to the football stadium that day, but they would have needed them in that moment. I mean, people have been like, what in the world just happened? One minute we're worshiping this man like God, all of a sudden, maggots. Another side note, a lot of times I hear people say, well, I don't read the Old Testament because God's so mean, just so horrible. But in the New Testament, God's just love, love, love. It's a big love festment in the, in the New Testament. Well, what do you think of Acts chapter 12? Listen, if we fight for our own glory, we're going to be in trouble. Christians, the very reason that we're alive, we're to be living for the glory of God. Okay? Live for His glory, and it's going to end well for you. You live for your own glory? Well, be wary of the worms. Here's the third reason we can see in the last two verses of the text. Read verse 24. It says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. Here's the third reason we shouldn't mess with God. Reason number three, God's plan cannot be stopped. You know, people have tried to stop the advancement of God. All throughout the history of time, we can read like Nebuchadnezzar, he tried it. It was bad for him. Fast forward to more recent times, people have burned the Bibles. People have tried to wreck churches. They've tried everything that you can think of. And you know what? God's work just keeps on rolling. Because no matter what anyone does, the word of God will increase and be multiplied. Because here you got one of the most powerful men in the world. He says, I know what I can do. I can stop Christianity. And God's got some worms for a guy like that. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because when God sets his motion and his purpose in motion, you can't stop what God's doing. So this is what I want to say about that. You know, I know we've got a lot of people that are really upset by things that are going on with our government. We can almost see Christian liberties being dismantled before our very eyes. Pretty soon it's going to be illegal to preach this thing. But you know what we need to do? Don't worry about what people say. Don't worry how crazy they scream and all this stuff they, they say they're going to take away their Christians, right? Maybe they will. But this is what we should continue to do. Just keep reaching people with Jesus. This, and then disciple those who come in faith. Just help people find and follow Jesus. And the end of ends, God wins. That's how it's going to end. In the very, very end, God wins. In the meantime, maybe some of us will die by a sword like James did. But if that happens to you, then you get to go be with Jesus and you win. Maybe you're going to get thrown in prison like Peter did, but you're going to get an angel escort right out the front door. I don't know. But we need to just keep telling people about Jesus. And in the end, God wins. But my only question is, you know, whose side are you on? Are you on Jesus' side? Are you on the world's side? Because God wants us all on His side. The Bible says it's the will of, of God that everyone would be saved. That every single man, woman, and child would, would accept this gospel message that, that we would place saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, at the very beginning, one of the songs that we sang was uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I didn't grow up going to church, ever. Never went to church, but I still knew that song. You know, was, I remember thinking, that's a beautiful song. I love it. But why is he calling himself a wretch? I said, I'm not a wretch. I'm a pretty good guy. No, the truth is I was a wretch. 
I was separated from God. My problem is I was comparing myself to other people. I'm comparing myself to that guy or that guy. I'm like, I'm doing okay compared to them. Maybe not as nice as that person over there, but, you know, I'm not that bad. The problem was I was using the wrong measuring stick. I need to compare myself to God, who is holy and perfect and righteous, who can't even look upon sin. See, when we do that, the truth is we all fall short. Every single one of us are sinners because of our thought life, our, our actions, and the things we should do but we didn't do. The, the truth is we're all sinners. And that separates us from God. And what the world wants to say is, what you know what you need to do? Put all your good works in one side and your bad in the other. And, then, and if the, the scale weighs good in the end of ends, you're, you're going to be good. But if the bad weighs out, then you've got big problems. But the problem is that's a lie. The truth is we all weigh bad. Because the Bible says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. So the truth is there's nothing I can do to make up for my wickedness. There's no way I can, I can save myself. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came and he hung on the cross for the wicked things I have done. The wicked things you have done. And the Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Right here. To call on the name of Jesus to, to save you. And for most of us it happens through a prayer. To just call out to him. And he'll save you. Pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. There's things that I've done in my past that I wish I'd never had done, but I've done it. There's nothing I can do to make up for that. And now I, it puts me in your debt. But you came and you were tortured and you hung on the cross and the very wrath of God the Father was placed on you. It's not for what you have done. It's what I have done. Save me from my sins. I give my life to you. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.